So I'd like to share a few thoughts this morning um, from the epistle to the Colossians, uh, chapter 3. It's a a passage uh, in uh, the NIV translation, which has the the title, Living as Those Made Alive in Christ. And that will serve as a title for for my talk today also. I'm going to start by reading the first four verses, just by way of introduction. So it's Colossians chapter 3 and reading from verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In chapter one of this letter, uh, Paul takes the Colossians back to when they first heard and believed the gospel, and he reminds them of some of the tremendous blessings that they have received as a result of that, along with the hope that is stored up for them and us in heaven. And uh, using different words, that's what Paul refers to um, in verse 4 as well. The, um, the hope that we have that we will one day appear with Christ in glory. In chapter 3, he wants to build on everything that's gone before. And you notice that it starts off with the words, since then. Um, could equally, I guess, have been therefore. It's a, a building on everything that's gone uh, before. Uh, and he's setting the context for the instructions which follow. Um, he's already made the point in chapter 2 that we no longer belong to this world. And therefore, he's highlighting the obvious. If we don't belong here anymore, then we should set our hearts and minds on the place where we do belong, um, things above. We don't belong here anymore, guys. And um, I don't know whether many of you will remember this experience, and for some of you it's something yet to be anticipated, but leaving home can be quite a scary thing. To leave behind the place that you're familiar with and the place where you do belong and how to make new friends and to learn new things and to live up to new expectations, that isn't easy. But, for example, when young adults go off to university maybe, um, even though it might be a bit scary, they will comfort themselves with the knowledge that this is an exciting new step which um, will lead on probably to greater things. And that's what Paul's reminding us here, isn't he? We've left home, but we're on a journey to somewhere far better. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he's uh, referred to the hope um, in that passage also. Uh, He talks about the hope from which springs faith and love. Um, Hope strengthens our faith and strengthens our love. And it's the hope that a Hebrews 6 and 19 says is an anchor for the soul. And as I said, in verse 4 here, we also um, have a reminder of that wonderful hope uh, when the Lord Jesus returns. When the Lord Jesus returns, that hope will be realised in a, a, an, an amazing way. But we can't wait until then, can we, 
before we start behaving differently. Uh, Because the scriptures tell us that the transformation has already begun. In fact, in the most important way, the transformation has already happened. It's already been completed, as 2 Corinthians 5 and 16 tells us, that if we're in Christ, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our saviour, if we've been born again, then a new creation has come. And it says the new is here and the old has gone. So the transformation has already happened. We are members of the greatest, most prestigious club of all time, aren't we? If we're in Christ, we're in the the in Christ club. And um, that's an amazing, an amazing position to be in, isn't it? But like many um, far lesser great and prestigious clubs, um, there are standards to be maintained, aren't there, in the In Christ Club? There are expectations as to how the members should look and behave. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about now in the next few verses. So we're going to read on a few more verses from verse 5 to 11. Having set the context, he says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We'll leave it there for a moment. So here in verse 5, Paul starts with some negative things, doesn't he? Things which have no place in a Christian's life. And I think from verse 7 we can take it that the Colossians had been largely successful in turning away from these things. They belong to the life that they once lived, uh, it says. But as we know, we're all works in progress. And Paul is now turning his attention to other behaviours which I think were still being seen, were still quite prevalent in the church at that time, things that they also needed to get rid of. We know that all sin is abhorrent to God, don't we? Um, Even the smallest sin would separate us from God forever if it wasn't for the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus. But it's also true that some sins are worse than others. Some sins will be judged by God more severely than others. The scriptures tell us that plainly. And some sins are more tolerable in the church than others. Notice I say tolerable there, not acceptable. But in practical terms, some sins are more tolerable in the church than others. I'll explain that um, a little bit more um, shortly. But in verse 5, we've got sins which are so serious that they could lead to a person being expelled from the church community. 
Um, we don't get that from this particular passage, but we do get it from, um, from, from, from elsewhere. And even though they no longer walked um, in those ways, we have this instruction to put to death these things. Again, I don't think that was because they were prevalent in the church, otherwise the people who were doing that would have been expelled from the community. But I think the reason why Paul gives such a, a stark warning, put these things to death, is that it's a warning that we shouldn't allow even the slightest inclination in our hearts uh, towards any of that kind of thing. We should not allow thoughts in our minds or any kind of desire in our hearts to grow in, in these areas of, of verse 5 at all. Because as James 1 and 15 says, that after desire is conceived, it, it gives birth to sin. If we allow ourselves to think about things such as we have in verse 5, then it increases the risk that we will ruin our lives of service by falling into, into sin. But as I say, in verse 8, Paul um, seems to be talking about other sins, sins which were still ongoing in the church. As he says, verse 8, But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. And then he goes on to list a number of different things. And the things he listed might be lesser sins, but they're still serious sins, aren't they? The language is very firm. He doesn't say try to avoid these things. He says you must get rid. He says do not lie. And part of his argument for why they should do that goes back to the transformation that he's already referred to. And he repeats it again in verses 9 and 10. They've taken off the old self and its practices and they've put on the new self. Now, the last section that we're going to read um, brings that to life in a more positive way, uh, what putting on the new self actually looks like in practice. But before we do that, I just wanted to leave a final thought about the sins that we've just thought about. How could they still be prevalent in a church of God? Two reasons, um, simple reasons. Number one, despite our new birth, we still have a strong inclination towards sin, don't we? Paul wrote about it, explained it in Romans 7, in his own experience, when he talked about the things that he wanted to do that he didn't, the things that he knew that he shouldn't do that he did, the battle that was going on constantly with him, that you get the sense that he didn't always, uh, he didn't always win. So there is a strong inclination for all of us, which is why we have the scripture, those who think you should stand, be careful lest you fall, because any of us could fall into sin. We have an old nature still with us that is attracted to sin. So that's the first thing. But secondly, sins which don't require immediate excommunication, there is a risk that they can become more tolerated. They can become the norm. Um, they become things that we turn a blind eye to. And I think it's quite sobering for us to notice that despite Paul highlighting some very positive things about this church, right back in chapter 1, verse 4, he said, we've heard of your faith, we've heard of your love that you have for all of God's people. He goes on to talk about the fruit of the gospel being seen among them. So this was a wonderful church, wasn't it? And yet he still had to tell them to rid themselves 
of certain serious sins. And I guess the sobering thought, the challenging thought, take it how you will, is that if Paul was writing a letter to this church here in Manchester today, would he also be telling us to do the same, to rid ourselves of certain sins? So that's just a thought to leave ourselves with. But let's move on to the positive stuff. What does putting on the new self look like apart from the need to take off our dirty clothes? Let's read from verse 12. Therefore... As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lots of positive stuff in there, isn't there? And what I think we've just read is a six-part strategy that um, Paul was presenting to the Colossians. I don't think he used PowerPoint or anything like that. He was just, but he was giving them a strategy to help them to live transformed lives, to help them with their spiritual growth. Let's look just very quickly at each of those six things that he referred to. The first one, in verses 12 to 13, we have a list of character qualities there, don't we? And I think we could put them all under the heading of imitating Christ, imitating the character of Christ. And we could look at each one of them individually, we don't have time for that. But if we view them all together, the point, the little point I'd just like to make is that although these are inner qualities, they should be seen on the outside. If you put on clothing, if we stick with Paul's metaphor, um, then people can see it, can't they? They can't see what's underneath, thankfully. Um, what people see is what's on the outside. And all those um, qualities that we read, they have an action potential. <clears throat> you do not have a kind heart if you don't do kind things. Self-evident. You are not humble if you treat others with contempt, and so on and so on. These inequalities, although they're inside, and we might say, well, only God sees them. Well, yes, only God sees what's inside, but people can see what's on the outside. Our clothing of these, these putting these, these characteristics on as clothing should be things that people can see. Secondly, Verse 14, it says that the overarching guiding principle for everything that we do and say and think, I'm paraphrasing, should be love. Not only is it the quality that binds everything together, but it's, it's the outer coat. It's the, um, the quality that people see first. Sure, all those other qualities, as they get to know us better, will reveal the depth of our love, but first impressions counts. And when people first meet us, what they see first is the outer coat. The first impression that we make on others 
is whether or not we really, really love one another. And so, in other words, apart from the enjoyment of church, which is hugely important, and apart from the support that we can give and receive from one another, which is also hugely important, but also the visible quality of our relationships is vital if we want to reach others. Because it reveals the truth about the gospel that we say that we believe in. And it reveals the truth about the character of the community that we'd like others to join. So the, 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 the visible uh, demonstration of the quality of our relationships is vital to outreach. Jesus did not say in John 13, verse 34, that it's our knowledge of the scriptures or the regularity of our meetings or our abstinence from one thing or another that would show the world that we are his disciples. He says, it's your love, the love that you have for one another. That's what's going to show that you are really Christians. So two things we've had so far, imitating the character of Christ and love in everything. Thirdly, verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. It's a call for Christians to work together, isn't it? You know, there will always be differences. We will always have differences. There will always be differences in opinion. There will also be lots of other kinds of differences. The wonderful thing about the universal invitation of the gospel is that it calls people together from all walks of life people who wouldn't necessarily have uh, any time together um, if, it, if it were not for the gospel. And also it calls together people who may be from similar walks of life, but nevertheless they still have different interests, different, different passions, different perspectives. But we are called to work together. And verse 13 talks about how we should bear with each other and how we should forgive each other. Verse 14 speaks of, of the love, as we've mentioned, but the love that leads to unity. You know, in my former employment, I used to have to work on projects and used to have to collaborate, in other words, with people who were really difficult. Obnoxious people, I used to think at times. People that I would in no way ever want to be friends with outside of the workplace. But we, 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 we put up with one another for the sake of the fact that we were paid to be there and we had to get the job done. That's not the kind of um, tolerance. That's not the kind of atmosphere that God wants to see in, in any church of God. Um, is it? There is a difference in world conflicts, conflicts isn't there, between a ceasefire and a peace. Let's pray that the peace of Christ will truly rule in our hearts in everything. Number four, verse 16, it says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. We need our Bible knowledge, don't we? Um, for faith, for hope, for sharing, for encouragement, for knowing God and what he, he wants from us. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, um, verse 9, he said, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your words. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. 
We could say a lot more about that, just as we could say a lot more about all these things I'm just touching on. But I just want to pick up the word richly, the word richly um, in there. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. I think our prayer should be that more and more we'll experience the richness of, of God's word. That, um, that when we open our Bibles dutifully, if we're trying to read our Bibles every day, that we don't get to the end of the chapter and we didn't even remember what we just read. And I know that that is an experience that many of us have. You know, you read your passage and it might be a difficult passage. It might be a wonderful passage, but we've got other things in our minds and you kind of have done my reading and there it is. And it makes not a blind bit of difference to the day that follows because we haven't taken anything in. But uh, the regularity of our reading and the quality of our reading is, is really important. And we should pray, I think, as we open our Bibles, that God will open up to us the richness of what we're reading so that it will transform our lives. Number five, nearly there, verse 17, it says that we should live as Christ's representatives. Again, I'm paraphrasing. What does it really say? It says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I think quite simply, this is just a reminder that our lives are not all about us. They're not all about what we want or what we need or what we enjoy. These things are important to God, very important to God, but also important to God is the effect that we have on others. Because none of us is an island, and our actions have the potential to have a very negative, very damaging effect on, on people around us, just as they have the potential to have a tremendously positive effect, and encouraging effect, and building effect on the people around us. And naturally, that's what God wants from our lives, isn't it? He wants us to have a, a positive effect on all the people that we come into contact with, especially the people we're in regular contact with, he wants us to have a positive impact in every imaginable way. And one more. So I've given you five. Did you see number six? We've read all the verses, so it must be buried in there somewhere. Did you see the, uh, the sixth thing that we, we should do? Uh, look at the end of verses 15, 16, and 17. It's, we have it three times. Be thankful. Be grateful and give thanks. I was reading a, a book recently. Um, I'm not going to get into why I felt that I needed to read this book, but the title of the book was Change Your Attitude Before It's Too Late. <laughs> and it was about how we can develop a negative attitude towards church, towards people, towards all sorts of things. And, it was, and, and, as, and as a key part of the strategy, it was about being thankful. Be thankful for what we have. And it's possible to give thanks without being thankful, isn't it? Even in worship. Um, and that's not to say that we do it deliberately. Um, um, it's not that we do it in a deliberately deceitful way. But I think sometimes we say thank you to each other and to God because we feel that we ought to. But we don't necessarily always feel truly grateful in our hearts. Um, you know, when you get ten, the tenth pair of socks on a Christmas Day morning, you know, you're saying thankful, but you, you thank you, but you don't really want ten pairs of socks. Um, so it's it's possible, isn't it? And and sometimes it's because uh, we haven't appreciated what we've received, 
These are merino socks. These are very special socks. And sometimes it's because we haven't appreciated how much it costs the person who gave us that, that thing. Um, and sometimes I think it can also be because we have become consumed with something which might make us feel hard done to. I've seen this on numerous occasions and I think I've experienced it in my own life as well. You feel hard done to about something and it kind of increases in importance in your thinking um, and it, it becomes an all-consuming thing. We can find ourselves, ourselves dwelling on things that we don't have or the things that haven't worked out the way we wanted them to or, or the injustices that we've, we've suffered in one way or another. So for all of these things, we should ask God to help us to focus on all the good things that we've received, shouldn't we? Rather than the things that we wish that we hadn't received in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, and that's not easy. It might not be easy. It might be very hard indeed. But you notice that one of the fruits of letting God's word dwell in us richly, it said, is gratitude. The more we get into our Bibles, the more we receive from our Bibles, from God's word, the more it can lead us into gratitude, which can help us to change our attitude before it's too late. So, um, in conclusion, I said that in chapter 2, Paul had explained that we don't belong to this world anymore. Um, chapter 3, he's showing us how we should live transformed lives that reflect that heaven is now our home. And he listed various sins that we should get rid of, and he's listed character qualities that we, that we, um, that we, we need more of. And that led us into this six-part strategy, for want of a better um, thing to call it, uh, for life in God's kingdom. Again, just very quickly, number one, imitate Christ. He's left us a perfect example. Number two, loving relationships and actions are vitally important. Number three, we need to overcome differences and resolve conflicts with the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. Number four, we need to appreciate the richness of God's words and allow it to change us. Five, we need to remind ourselves that we are Christ's representatives or his ambassadors, as 2 Corinthians 5 and 20 says, because when we think like that, then that will affect our behaviours and our, and our priorities. We are not our own. We were born with a price, bought with a price. And number six, finally, be thankful and give thanks. So six little things that we can maybe uh, try and remember. I'm going to finish just by reading a couple of verses from 1 Thessalonians 5 and Ephesians 5. I'm going to just put them together, read them without comment, but they kind of summarise really where we've got to. It says... You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light.